One more night talking about fear. <laughs> what we really should do is have a campfire and <laughs> tell scary stories. Instead of Roger telling beautiful stories of the circle of giving and receiving, we could all tell our scary stories. If I told mine about being lost in Chicago, you guys could tell yours. No, there's something really ventilating about putting it out there, you know, just that what we've been through, and now we can, you know, say it out loud and maybe even smile and laugh about it. <laughs> One story my wife really loves to tell, some of you have heard her tell it even, is uh, uh, Common Ground used to be at our, where we are currently living, so we had a little apartment on the back side of it. And uh, one night, in the middle of the night, like two in the morning or something, there's just this loud banging on the front door. Bang, 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 bang. And I just, you know, woke up in a start, and I could not conceive of what that could be. I, and I, you know, the only thing my mind could conjure up is some terrible group, like mob, <laughs> wanted to get it. I made no sense, but I just, it was... It was so loud, it sounded so loud, and I think part of it was the the door just made a lot of sound when you hit it, and part of it was being startled, and part of it were maybe just the way this person banged on the door. But anyway, I have a kind of a controlling mind. I'd like to know what's going on. <laughs> and I just couldn't conceive, I, I couldn't get a scenario in my mind that gave me ground under my feet. And I was falling into a panic attack. <laughs> and, and I needed some ground, you have to understand. So <laughs> now in hindsight, the one ground I thought I could have was sort of being the guy who's in control. Like that was the <laughs> so, so there I was, literally falling into a panic attack. And I screamed at my wife, don't panic. <laughs> <laughs> It was the police. Uh, they, somebody who had been break, caught breaking into our car. Here's, here's just a little absurd. I mean, talk about finding humor in these things. So, I'm still kind of in a tizzy. I mean, it was a relief to see it was the police. And uh, they've got somebody in the back of the car. And you're saying, is that your car? And we're saying, yeah, I mean, it's right the way our house is. It's like right next to the house. And, and then he holds up this bag of bags. You know, just kind of, it looked like garbage. And he says, is this yours? <laughs> and I was, I was so confused. They were actually, yeah, they were mine. They were in my car. And we were going to bring the bags to get recycled at the grocery store. <laughs> but for, for the life of me, I just didn't get it. And I think he asked like four times, are you sure these aren't your bags? <laughs> They're not my bags. <laughs> I mean, there was nothing else in the car except for those <laughs> old bags. I feel pretty bad about the, the guy. <laughs> so it's interesting to look back on these things that in the moment were as scary as anything is scary. I mean, that, that was real terror. And the terror wasn't that there's a big hairy monster. The terror was my mind couldn't con create some kind of ground. I know what's going on. This is what's going on. This is what I do. 
I just, it was too sudden and too out of the box for my mind. And then, of course, the harder you try to create ground, like find an explanation, the more absurd it is, you know. So, that's my story here, another story of fear. But tonight I want to say a little bit more about how we take apart fear, but also the deepest move that we have as practitioners, of course, is understanding. Understanding that fear isn't what it appears to be. And there's lots of metaphors and examples in not just the Buddhist tradition, but generally in spiritual life, talking about this turn in the mind where something appears to be terrible and then isn't. And uh, maybe, I don't know, Roger didn't mention it, but maybe even, you know, at some point there were some flashes about giving a kidney away or just coming on the retreat might have seen, seemed like a hairy monster to some of you or does right now to some of you. <laughs> or going back can seem like the big hairy monster or whatever, you know, whatever it might be. Some of you know Ramakrishna. He was a very well-known Indian saint in the mid to late 1800s. And uh, somebody once asked him, why is there evil in the world? He gave one of these wonderful answers. You have to remember, Ramakrishna was basically an uneducated um, person, but uh, was this amazing devotee of Kali, which, talk about scary things. If you don't know, Kali is one of those fierce uh, archetypes and sort of feminine deity in Hinduism, like Durga, fangs, necklace of skulls, just really, if you ever see, look, when you get home, Google Kali. <laughs> anyway, um, so he was asked, why is there evil in the world? And he answered, to thicken the plot. <laughs> and there's this, there's this concept in yogic mysticism, what sometimes we call Hinduism, that uh, the word is lila. Maybe you've heard that. It's related to the word maya, too which is another common philosophic, philosophical theme in yogic mysticism. But Leela is, like, like the simple translation is play, but it's the play of the divine. And there are a lot of, you know, in Hinduism and in other traditions, there are a lot of metaphors about, like, what this is that we're all experiencing is some kind of play. It looks serious, feels very serious and self-important, but that's just the appearance of the play. One line is, uh, it's created out of bliss, by bliss, for bliss. And I don't know if my sixth grade teacher, I had a sixth grade teacher, Mr. Campworth, <laughs> I went to a Catholic school, he was just like right out of Marquette University, and um, teaching a bunch of sixth graders in 1969. I had a pretty liberal Catholic school. The nuns had become anti-war activists. 
we had a young priest who was pretty dynamic. So it wasn't like all the Catholic churches. Um, and so anyway, he had to teach catechism to us sixth graders. And uh, 2001 Space Odyssey had just come out. I'm not sure what year it came out, but maybe like 68. So it just been out for a year. So he's going to teach us catechism. And this is like at the beginning of the, you know, the year. So he shuts off the lights in the classroom. I don't know. I think he might have even pulled the shades. And he puts on the theme song from 2001 Space Odyssey. <laughs> you know, and I, he had us like put our heads down or it was dark. And he says, he says, imagine you're in a really dark closet. So he was trying to, in his own way, <laughs> in a way that would, would cause the Pope to excommunicate him, I'm sure. <laughs> he was trying to explain this play. I don't know if he had actually studied yoga or just made it up or had a, a drug trip or something. <laughs> so he said, imagine you're like in the darkest closet. You can't no light whatsoever. There you are, aware, but you can't experience anything. And he was kind of trying to give us a sense of like, uh, you know, this this sort of pure awareness, the divine awareness, being a little bored and wanting to stir things up a little bit, right? And how just through imagination, you know, the divine just through imagination sort of creates something. And and then he, he just kind of went on. I can't remember how it all how, how it all went. But it was some kind of like uh, activity of uh, some kind of creative activity that's what this is and another like other ways that they talk about this and you know different traditions different teachers have talked about this is like when you think about what would be the greatest amusement park ride in the universe it would be creating a very deep powerful sense of being apart, alone, desperate for solid ground, not finding it, and then realize you never were apart, couldn't be apart, right? That'd be a rush, <laughs> like a divine rush. So, I don't know, but but one way or another, we have to change our view about things that scare us. We have to, because we have so much arrogant certainty that we're right, that things are scary. We don't let any dent, we don't, you know, it doesn't matter that I screamed at my wife, you know, don't panic. (laughs) Or, because that's basically what wise people do. There's a very funny cartoon, um, I think, isn't it the same guy who... Uh, created The Simpsons. Did he do the Life is Hell series? Yeah. Anybody know? Yeah. Matt Garing? Garing. Well, anyway, that. <laughs> but back back when I lived in Berkeley, uh, those cartoons were out in the early 80s, Life is Hell, a series of cartoons. They were very, very funny. You can get the books. The collections are quite good. And uh, like One-Eared Rabbits, I think, if I remember correctly. Yeah. 
And so anyway, there's this little baby rabbit who's afraid of death and can't sleep. So he goes, sees his dad, and his dad comes into his room and puts him back into bed and just starts uh, philosophizing, you know, oh, you don't have to worry about death. We all die. That's just the way it is, you know. It will come, and then you die. But that's, you know, you just, you know, buck up. It's going to be okay. (laughs) And the son, for some reason, is reassured and falls asleep. And the last scene is the father <laughs> lying awake at night because he didn't buy a story. <laughs> so part of what makes us so paranoid and feel like we should trust our fear is because when we look around, when we hear what the wise people around us say, it doesn't make sense, right? They don't really have good answers for why we shouldn't be afraid. So then, then we really are afraid. Like, you mean you don't know what's going on either? Your, your defense is to believe that? You know, your defense is to go shopping or get involved in consumerism or be obsessed about this or that? Then it gets really scary, you know, because we think it, it sort of reaffirms the mind's worst-case scenario, which is like we're all sliding down a well to hell and and nobody has an answer. And then, you know, then we can get, you know, depressed or suicidal. <laughs> That's not where we're going to the talk. <laughs> or it's like just into any kind of thing to fill our life up. I mean, just get into anything, just (coughs) whatever it might be. It starts to make sense, you know, the different obsessions that people get into, somebody who collects the biggest ball of yarn or twine or somebody, you know, whatever it might be, do these sort of things that create some distraction so we're not thinking about the bigger issues. Or, as the Buddha says, that that sort of realization that nobody knows what they're talking about leads to a more authentic search. And he has this line where he says, is there anybody who knows anything about this? Right? And that's a real moment. And probably most of us have had our version of that moment. Is there anybody who seems to know what they're talking about when talking about what life is, what it's about, what's important? Where we find real safety. Where do we find real safety? What is worthy of putting our heart upon, dedicating our life to? And a lot of what we learn initially is like what's not worthy, you know, what what doesn't actually lead to safety. This is from Jack Cornfield. These very plot thickeners, often the most difficult and insistent ones, can lead us to open our bodies, hearts, and minds. In doing so, we discover that these were never our true identity. Under the tears, the pain, the fear, and the anger, we have <coughs> contracted, uh, contracted ourselves around. We find freedom, joy, ease in the face of all life. <clears throat> Here's this interesting... 
amazing dynamic, which is basically this path of awakening. To realize that which is truly safe, trustworthy, which is truly a refuge, we actually have to open to exactly what we don't want to open to. Because that's how we find what's trustworthy. That what can, that which can actually open and be fearless with what is scary is what we can trust, right? To find, whether you call it the mind or the heart or the view or the understanding that can be right in the middle of this world as it is, not wavering, not shutting its eyes, responding, engaged, happy, not burdened. So by doing that, what is it that can do that? That's what we want, isn't it? (coughs) So in a way, like one way I like to talk about this, we have to, like insight or realization or awakening has to be provoked. It's not just going to show up because we've, you know, we're a good little boy or girl, or we do our penance, or, you know, behave the way we were told to behave. Awakening happens when it makes sense to keep running, to stop running from what we're afraid of, and to turn toward it. Because it's only by intuiting that it's going to be okay, and then we have to actually realize if it is actually okay. So we really need the fear, whatever it might be, and it will be different for each person. You know, for some, it's like one of the big leaps into the unknown is getting involved in a committed relationship. For other people, it's being willing to be single and not assume it's a problem or something's wrong with me. You know, other people, it's leaving financial security, leaving a job and going off somewhere. Other people, it's taking a job in order... (laughs) No, really. Taking a job, getting right in the middle of corporate... Consumer America, consumerism America, because you have a good reason to do that, because you want some money in order to, and this is what you have to do, be unafraid of that peace. Like, be in the middle of the devil without feeling like you're going to get stained or contaminated by it. So it's, it's not, you know, it's not just a sort of facing death or, you know, helping somebody who's in need where we face our demons. It's often in these very mundane places, willing to get up in the morning even though we could sleep in. You know, sometimes that is the biggest existential hurdle, to get up and sit for 20 minutes before we do the day. It just feels like impossible. It isn't impossible. We just have to find the heart that's not afraid of that the understanding that's not afraid of that, or apologize to someone because we screwed up and we 
we're mean. You know, it can feel impossible to make amends with that person. But it's just because we're afraid. Robert Hall has this wonderful line. Can you find it here? He's one of the first early Spear Rock teachers. I think he's retired now. He started this kind of therapeutic work called um, Lomi, sort of a a somatic therapy. He was an MD. And this is an article from their newsletter from way back in the 90s, Shadow on the Path. He starts off by talking about the story in uh, the Bible. Is it in Genesis about Adam and Eve? Is that where Adam and Eve is in Genesis? And um, about the, it's really a, a potent metaphor about stepping into duality, right? So there are humans... And they got a little too curious. They wanted to eat from the tree of knowledge, good and evil. And they did, and then they felt separate, right? Because they they wanted to own it personally. That's sort of the birth of separation. And then, of course, they were cast off. They were exiled, and they had to work. No longer, you know, unrelenting bliss, but now sort of ordinary good and bad, this and that, me and you. And talks, so he talks about in this article, you know, as soon as there's a sense of separation, there is existential threat. Like, what can harm me? What do I need? And uh, fear is born there. So I'll read a little bit from this. As soon as there is self and other, we have something to lose, a profound, perhaps unconscious longing for union, for completion, and for wholeness is also born in that vulnerable, small self, right? So there's both the fear of hell, staying alone, staying alone, being alone, being separate, and a deep spiritual wish to come back to wholeness. But of course, it's always a mistaken understanding that I personally have to find the wholeness, which will never work, because the the basic assumption is off, that I'm a part. So we always look for wholeness somewhere else. It's right here, of course, because the the idea of separation, the experience of separation is a misperception that was born, right? That a bubble that was created that looks like separation, but actually isn't. So within the bubble, we always think that we have to go somewhere to get fulfillment, completion, <coughs> unity, like to a good retreat, or a good sit, or a good teacher, or i got to first get this my act together and get rid of these bad habits, and then find a good retreat. Or whatever, and then maybe I'll have that unity experience. But it is destined to feel separate and isolated from the world it is born into, 
and that sense of difference from the outside world brings anxiety and the constant need to seek security and consolation. And then he goes on, he talks about something Trumpa Rinpoche said. Um, uh, he spoke often of the psychological strategies created by the developing ego self in its attempt to cope, cope with the horror of falling through empty space. Right? Because that's the way self, a sense of separation, experiences this when it has self-view. It's like things keep happening and I can't get that ground. So that's why underneath we all have the sense of panic. And that's what Trumpa Rinpoche calls it. Um, an attempt to cope with the horror of falling through empty space. He called those strategies the normal personality. He called the fear basic panic. Because <laughs> it is. It's so fundamental. We're all in a state of basic panic. We dress it up, you know, as adults. We dress it up, but it's basically there. It's so neat when you're alone um, and you don't, like when you do a self-retreat and you don't impose a structure on yourself, got to sit at this time, walk at this time, sit at this time, then this I study, then I make my... But you just sort of see how it plays out. And one of the things you'll see is a more realistic or a more honest display of basic panic. <laughs> Where you just sort of... <clears throat> and, and even when you go sit, it's sort of like, i got to fill up space. And, and, and at this, uh, you're just a little bit more honest about the basic uneasiness of the heart, trying to find some nice feeling. It's really, I, I encourage you to, when you feel up to it, to find an isolated place and spend a few days and don't give yourself a lot of projects to do. Just do whatever you're going to do, but don't feel like you have to do anything, but just observe sort of what happens when you're not filling your life up with activity. And the heart, the mind, begins to express its basic uneasiness, its basic panic. There they are. He called the fear basic panic. Over time, we identify ourselves as this personality. We come to think we are our strategies for managing fear, which is just what Joko Beck said the other night when we were reading her chapter, Bottleneck of Fear. That's the, she calls that the basic mistake is when we take fear and our fear responses to be ourselves. The truth about ourselves, that separate self, is simply an interpretation of reality having no basis in fact. It's regulated, relegated rather, to the unconscious, along with the turbulent emotions that arise in reaction to such unacceptable information. There's a lot more here, but I'll just read his last paragraph. Maybe the last two paragraphs. He says, Any genuine healer will tell you that a healing, in order to be complete, must begin with the acknowledgement of the problem. When we step into the spiritual path, we do so because we have recognized our suffering and a longing for relief. 
we are willing to take part in the healing process. In spiritual life, that process involves a thorough cleaning and draining of the wound of separation. Little do we know when we begin, still excited by the prospect of freedom from suffering, that the draining procedure involves unrelenting exposure of noxious material to the light of conscious awareness. <laughs> he had fun writing that phrase. <laughs> there is no spiritual growth, no genuine freeing of the heart without willingness to deal with the dark side of our nature, the shadow. Those aspects of our ego self relegated to the unconscious because they are repugnant to our self-image um, they arise out of uh, they arise out of its hiding places, whether we like it or not. All our intentions to do well, to be good, to aspire to compassion and wisdom, have cast a shadow just as dark as our secret, selfish thoughts and perverted fantasies. We are undone in the process of becoming one. That is the way healing works. So much, actually, that uh, we realize as we do this practice is the the weight and, as he says, the shadow of all our idealism around spiritual practice. This idea, basically some version that there's a super parent that's going to save us. And kind of a god with a long white beard or some kind of celestial energy but something out there that's going to pick us up off of that slippery well that we're sliding down toward hell and sort of take care of us in the way that we want to be taken care of. We have that. And, of course, like he's saying, when we have that idea of being saved, we have the monsters that are in the way from being saved, right? You can't have positive without negative. So if we make spiritual practice about this great positive, then we have this great fear that, it, one, it's not true, I just made that up, or just somehow I'm not, gonna, I'm not good enough to achieve it. Right? This is a lot of what people, we all bring up, this self-doubt. You know, I can't do it, I'm not good enough, my mind's misbehaving, if only I started younger. Maybe I should wait and do it later in life. You know, we just have all these things that seem to be in the way. So this, the, the reason I'm bringing some of these things up is to um, have a different perspective to everything that doesn't seem to be working in our life. To really see it as an essential part, like... That stuff has to come up so that somehow wisdom, the heart, the Buddha, right, this refuge of the Buddha, awakenness, can express its willingness to be right in the middle. We have such a strong sense, as I mentioned, I think maybe that first night, talked about that, that this isn't it. That we don't even, we're not even willing to show up, really, to the moment. It's a real insight in our meditation practice 
when you start catching yourself trying to be a good practitioner. And it, it begins to dawn on the mind how much of the disturbance that we've been challenged with in our practice is exactly due to our attempts to practice. It's like the perverted idea of what practice is has been causing so many of the problems in spiritual life. It's shocking. <laughs> and, and liberating. I, I mean, it just depends on how we take it. On the one hand, it can feel like a real betrayal. You mean, like I've wasted all that time. But a better perspective is to be so grateful to realize how we can't justify neurotic activity <coughs> for any purpose. You know, forcing, making the world bend to our ego, our will, it's always going to have a bad result. Greed is always going to have a bad result. Hate, fear, is always going to have a bad result. So what is this alchemy? You know, I'll, I'll give you some uh, famous teachings from Milarepa. Some of you know, I think I mentioned him the other night, as the patron saint of Tibetan Buddhism, the student of Marpa, very famous story of Milarepa, uh, who had gotten himself into trouble um, using psychic powers to get even with somebody that had caused his family, had betrayed or taken something from his family, and ended up killing people because of that, I think, and so had a lot of remorse <clears throat> and found his teacher, and he had a lot of purification, so his teacher had him build a house stone by stone in Tibet, and then take it down and rebuild it somewhere else, take it down, I think, a couple times, several times, <laughs> just to sort of work out some of the demons, the big demons, or the gross demons. And then he became a great yogi, a great practitioner, really spent a lot of time alone in the wilderness, and uh, became famous throughout the land. And there are stories of how the demons would show up in his cave. And the famous stories, in the end, having to put his head in the mouth of the demon. You know, he had all this sort of normal tricks, like we do. We accept them. We teach them the Dharma, you know. Knee pain, you're just sensation that comes and goes, you know. You're nothing but the expression of anicca, dukkha, anatta. Change, impermanence, the dukkha is the stress when I take the pain in the knee personally, and it's an impersonal process. And so he'd do these different things, and the demons would leave, and he got pretty good at subjugating the demons, which is, this is the transmutation of emotion, of fear. It's when we know how to befriend, not to be afraid, not to exclude. We have to include it. There's something there. It's our life energy. Fear is just concentrated life energy that has 
with these eyes the appearance of being scary. That's all it is. And then um, one time, you know, one of the great battles, when evidently there were thousands of demons. This is from uh, Trumpa Rinpoche. It's one of the first spiritual books I ever read was his book, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. And it was just a life-changing book for me back in the early 80s, 82, I think I read it. And he's talking about Milarepa. <clears throat> Thousands of demons assembled to terrify and attack Milarepa while he was meditating. But he preaches to them, uh, but he preaches to them, is open and accepting, willing to offer them his whole being, and they are subjugated. At one point, five demonesses, beginning to realize that they cannot frighten Milarepa, sing to him, If the thought of demons never rise, never rises in your mind, you need not fear the demon hosts around you. It is most important to tame your mind within. And then there's this very famous line at the end of this verse. On the steep path of fear and hope, they lie in ambush. Right? So there are always demons around us because we can conjure them up. So we're never safe. It's just a matter of whether the mind out of habit is going to conjure them up. And we're in the vicinity of conjuring them up when we're along that steep slope of fear and hope because that's where they lie in ambush. We we can't get away with fear and hope, and they go together. There's no hope without fear. So what does life look like without fear and hope? This, let me just finish this paragraph. And later, Milarepa himself says, insofar as the ultimate or the true nature of being is concerned, there are neither Buddhas nor demons. One who frees oneself from fear and hope, evil and virtue, will realize the insubstantial and groundless nature of confusion. Samsara will then appear to be Mahamudra itself. Mahamudra is sort of like the path or the freedom in the path. Samsara will be freedom. Samsara means the cycles of suffering are themselves not a problem. You know, being a human being is essentially not a problem. Having a conditioned personality isn't a problem. Having a body that is born, ages, and dies isn't a problem. It just has the, it can have the appearance of being a problem. So what we have, you know, to hold this teaching, fear, is not what it appears to be. And it's really important that you have something to contain or to collect or to hold your deepening understanding that fear isn't what it appears to be. Fear is energy, life energy. Fear is something to transform or to transmute with spiritual alchemy through the process of fearlessness. Like we realize the freedom of fearlessness by opening to what we don't want to open to. Relaxing with what doesn't feel safe to relax with. Where else would we realize the heart's capacity, the mind's capacity to be fearless? We're not going to realize fearlessness when everything's going well and we have everything we want. That's not where we're going to realize it. 
we're going to realize it in those moments when, for whatever it is for us, the ground is removed from beneath us. And it feels like this isn't okay. This isn't okay. This can't be happening. This doesn't make sense. Right? And so all those assumptions that life should make sense, that I should know what's going to happen before it happens, all of a sudden we realize, no. So, is there a heart that can be present and relaxed and stable in this kind of world? So one way to hold that is with the three refuges. We take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. That's what we did the first night, uh, Thursday night. And to reflect on these, to use the form, which may not mean much to you initially, but then we use the word Buddha, or use your own word, but we're we're learning, training the mind to recognize as we intuit more and more this capacity to be right in the middle of boredom, right in the middle of knee pain, right in the middle of humiliation, right in the middle of doubt, or whatever for you is most discombobulating, then we want to describe what is able to be right in the middle and unafraid. And one of the characteristic characteristics of what can be right in the middle will be this thing we call Buddha, this awakened quality of the mind, right? Because we're not in the middle if we're not awake, aware of that. Awareness without reactivity, that's Buddha. That's sort of what we point to with Buddha, the awakenness, as Ajahn Sumedho calls it. Not to personify that I'm awake, but that there is this capacity of the heart, of the mind, that is capable of reflecting clearly it's like this. This is being known. It's just this. And, and this will make sense given what we've been talking about tonight, we take refuge in Dhamma or Dharma the way it is this movement of causes and conditions arising and ceasing endlessly. What's showing up? We take refuge in the life that's showing up, the ephemeral but real, you know, process of, of being in the moment of what's showing up. So the awakenness rests in Dhamma, the movement of all things coming and going, the lawful unfolding of all things coming and going. And we take refuge in Sangha. And Sangha is that when Buddha rests in Dhamma, when that awakened heart, awakenness of the heart, rests in whatever's showing up, whatever's coming and going in our life, what is seen is something really beautiful. You'd call it uh, a loving response to the moment, a beautiful, skillful response to the moment that has a lot of integrity. 
but the beauty that we see sometimes in ourselves, sometimes in others, when they have enlightened activity. Activity, participation in the moment that's not driven by fear or greed. So we take refuge in that effortless, skillful engagement. We take refuge in the way things are, and we take refuge in like this profound sensitivity or awareness of how it all is. And this is what we turn to. So when we take refuge, we're really taking refuge in that which is fearless and can can meet whatever shows up in life. So like I do the refuges every morning, and I'd encourage you to find your own way of doing it where you're taking, you know, just a couple minutes to bring to mind what is true safety for you. Where where are you placing your heart? What are you counting on to make this existence workable? I'll end with uh, a little sharing from Pema Children. She's talking about bodhicitta, which is a term that's used quite a bit in the later schools. It, bodhi is awakened, citta is heart, so awakened heart. But it often, in the later schools, it, it um, it's really talking about this refuge of sangha, the compassion, the compassionate action, the effortless compassionate action that flows from the awakened place, like when Buddha knows Dhamma, Buddha resting in Dhamma, then we have this bodhicitta, this this force or stream of goodness. She says, Finding the basic goodness of bodhicitta is like that, tapping into a spring of living water that has been temporarily encased in solid rock. When we touch the center of sorrow, when we sit with discomfort without trying to fix it, when we stay present to the pain of disapproval or betrayal and let it soften us, these are the times that we connect with bodhicitta. Tapping into that shaky and tender place has a transformative effect. Being in this place may feel uncertain and edgy, but it also is a big relief. Just to stay there, even for a moment, feels like a genuine act of kindness to ourselves. Being compassionate enough to accommodate our own fears takes courage, of course, and it definitely feels counterintuitive, but it's what we need to do. It's hard to know whether to laugh or to cry, at the human predicament. Here we are with so much wisdom and tenderness, and without even knowing it, we cover it over to protect ourselves from insecurity. Although we have the potential to experience the freedom of a butterfly, we mysteriously prefer the small and fearful cocoon of the ego. Let's just take a few 
seconds and let go of the words. Maybe take a minute and reflect on Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, this awakened wakedness or this powerful, stainless presence resting in this world that comes and goes. And the beautiful stream of bodhicitta, goodness that flows from that, the heart's response. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.